just a little bit excited this morning. Not going to lie. We do want to welcome to the program Michelangelo Sr. really is an American journalist, author, and talk radio host of his own uh, show called the Michelangelo Sr. really show, which can be found on Sirius XM Radio. He is also author of the new book, It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. It's a great honor for the Outspoken Boys to welcome Michelangelo Sr. really to Outspoken. Are you there? Yes. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. You know, I have to tell you, you have inspired a very uh, raucous and passionate first hour of our program. <laughs> you sure have. You sure have. Oh, really? Yes. We, it's, we it's, got a little out of hand, not going to lie. It's gotten real fiery okay, in here. Well, what happened? <laughs> right? Well, you know what happened? We read your book. That's yes. what happened. <laughs> that is what happened. And we highlighted the hell out of it. And yeah. And then Indiana uh, happened, and we talked about that. And then Arkansas so, happened. And then, and then Arkansas what didn't happened. happen? But I want to start first with what made you think, you know, this this concept that you wanted to get out to people. What made you think right now I need to talk to people about this concept of victory blindness and how you needed – it's almost a cautionary book saying, hey, wake up. What made you think I need to do this now? Well, I really was saying how a lot of people were uh, very enthralled and very excited about all of the great wins we've had. And we've had, you know, mm-hmm. amazing – uh, wins and um, great. We need to celebrate them and need to, uh, you know, really kind of, um, I, I think, pat each other on the back for achieving them because they came through uh, a lot of hard work. But it started sounding like people were saying, we've arrived and, you know, it's done and we're finished. And you know, I'm on the radio every day talking to people across the country and it wasn't finished for them because they're still experiencing all mm-hmm. kinds of discrimination. Right. And every time something would happen, you know, in the media, like two women thrown out of a taxi cab because they were kissing or somebody thrown out of the store. And if I would bring it up on my show, the phones would just light up with people experiencing the same thing. So I was just seeing a disconnect between how people were talking about the winds and things being almost over versus right. the discrimination people were experiencing. And I thought, I, I really have to explore this and, and it, because it was really troubling. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people... In in this you know uh, quote unquote winning culture uh, where we see these uh, these you know marriage laws passing and marriage equality arriving, a lot of people say uh, to discrimination. Wow, I didn't know that that still existed. They are unaware that discrimination still exists. Um, so that's that's really scary. What would you say is the biggest danger of victory blindness? The biggest danger of it, I think, is that it makes people think that we've won so much Mm -hmm. that we should really proceed with caution because uh, we may lose it all. And so therefore we should be magnanimous and, uh, you know, kind of excuse some, some bigotry or look the other way because, oh, we're winning anyway. Let's not look like we're, you know, being uh, too aggressive or it's overkill or whatever. I mean, I, I read a, a column by David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, and that that was his response to Indiana. He was like, you know, gays are just, you should lower the tone the way you're complaining about this because you're winning anyway. Um, I, <laughs> I, started, I really was seeing a lot of that last year with a lot of gay activists, you know, 
And I, I think that's the biggest danger of victory blindness. It makes people think maybe we should lower our tone when, in fact, we need to really, uh, you know, be more confrontational because we need to demand so much more in terms of federal rights and state rights all across the country. Well, you know, you mentioned a story. You talked about activists out there who are, you know, wanting to be more magnanimous. You mentioned a story uh, of conversation you had with Dan Savage, who is known to be, you know, you both are known to be so outspoken and so not afraid. We had Dan on uh, uh, just a few weeks ago. And I think what was what took me aback is to know that he used that word and that he even mentioned that because I see him as such a a loud and outspoken individual, it's scary to know that people who are in the leadership and are tend to be the ones leading the fight are also the ones saying, mm, you know what, let's just back off a bit. Yeah, in the book, um, that is, is uh, part of a, a, a chapter in which I, I'm focused on, or in this chapter of Victory Blindness, I focus on the story of uh, Mozilla, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Firefox uh, company, and, and Brandon Ike, the uh, CEO who stepped down, and how, um, you know, it wasn't even LGBT activists who had demanded he step down. It was developers of the company and others who were uncomfortable working with the company, and they donated their time, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, to help uh, develop the software, and they were saying, we don't want to work for a company like this. And, you know, that was... A, uh, a development that should be seen as a societal shift that's good, <laughs> and it wasn't something activists asked for. Right. Uh, and yet, um, Dan was among some people who uh, followed Andrew Sullivan's lead in thinking that it was terrible that uh, Brendan Ike stepped down and that it made us look bad. It made mm-hmm. gays look like fascists and Nazis right. for, you know, demanding this. And, and Dan didn't have those strong kind of comments that Andrew Sullivan had, but when I talked to him about it, he was saying, yeah, the optics are just not right. It looks bad. And then on his podcast, he was saying that, you know, when you're a small minority, um, you know, you have to um, really be careful. You can't just, you know, uh, look like you're, you know, scaring people. And I just mm-hmm. thought that was so out of, out of, out of, you know, sync with uh, how Dan has spoken in the yeah. past. And, yeah. and he was saying that, you know, on, on African-American civil rights, we've gotten past the point. He remembered when he was a kid and how there used to be all these racist things on TV and he would see uh, on, on, on Firing Line or some show, some TV show, but we've passed that point where you can't say those things, but that mm-hmm. you can still say them about gay people. And, you know, when you're a small minority, you shouldn't scare people. And I thought, well, we should be saying, no, you can't say that about right. gay people. And, right. and I, you know, it was really just after Dan had launched, I mean, six months after, before, six months before that, he had launched the boycott of, uh, the vodka boycott of, exactly. uh, you know, Stolichnaya vodka uh, in Russia. So it was very strange because here he was kind of pulling back, and I thought, you know, that was an example of this sort of victory blindness, and I don't think it's a certain kind of person because right. Dan obviously has been forceful in other things, but right. I think we all, all of us, succumb to it at different points. Mm-hmm. We suddenly think, oh, well, maybe we should be magnanimous. Right, it's very um, seductive. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's sort of, you get caught up in the moment, and you think you've won a lot, and, and yeah, you don't yeah. realize that, 
you know, in, in Oklahoma, they have gay marriage, but in like, you know, 80% of the counties, nobody's getting married. Because right. Exactly. If right. you get married, you'll get fired from your job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Which is absolutely crazy. And, and to hear that Dan Savage, such a huge uh, leader in the LGBT community, say these things, um, it really, really strikes a red flag. But this is happening not only with uh, LGBT leaders, it's a political vibe around there. Um, and towards LGBT rights, there's this sense of incrementalism where they, they'll pass little things uh, just as a step, but not get the whole picture because you don't want to raise too much attention. Rock, boat. rock the boat. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. You mentioned it in your book and you write uh, a couple chapters about uh, incrementalism and getting the whole pie, essentially. Well, you know, it's got a whole history to it. Mm-hmm. I won't go deeply into it, but I think it is important to sort of go back. Um, in the early part of the uh, gay rights movement, you know, back in the 70s, uh, coming off of the sexual revolution and the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, we really were pushing for full civil rights. And there was a gay rights bill introduced in Congress mm-hmm. by Bella Abzug, a New York City congresswoman, and it called for a full and comprehensive civil rights bill. Uh, housing, public accommodations, employment, banking, everything. And, you know, there was a backlash against gay rights from Anita Bryant, uh, and then AIDS came, and there was a backlash against AIDS, and uh, people got afraid, and um, a lot of the power shifted over to the Human Rights Campaign, then known as the Human Rights Campaign Fund, and they decided that they should do a different strategy. And See, that's where I think it really started, this incrementalism idea. We should have kept with the idea of no full civil rights bill. Instead, right. they said, let's ask for just a little bit. So they came up with end of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, just asking for employment discrimination, uh, anti-discrimination law, and then put in religious exemptions, which you're exempting the very people who would discriminate. Exactly. And in 20 years, we didn't even get that. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, when I say get rid of incrementalism, I mean, imagine if for 20 years we kept introducing that full civil mm. rights bill, mm. and now it wouldn't seem so radical. It would just be like, okay, that's the next thing. And, you know, it, it didn't pan out just asking for a little bit. I, I think your enemies don't take you seriously when you, if you're claiming you're suffering, but you only want a little bit. You don't right. sound very serious. Right. And then they see you. I, I have to say, you know, we talk a lot on here is that I think we live in a culture where as LGBT people, we have been taught to take what's offered, say thank you, apologize for just bothering anybody, and then move on. There is this sense of, I mean, we talk a lot about here being no no apologies, that ask for what we deserve to have and stop backing down from from those things and that's what you're saying you're saying let's ask for everything and it may take longer but you have to be in it for the long run because your investment will will pay off right absolutely i think you really hit on a sort of um an attitude or a feeling that a lot of people have they don't even know they have it we've been raised to sort of believe that we're asking for a lot by just asking people to you know quote unquote tolerate us Uh, and and just, you know, we're asking for a lot just to be, you know, seen on television rather than demanding.
demanding a full and multifaceted representation of ourselves, right? Exactly. So we settle, and and we don't realize how much that we're settling. And at this point in time, we should be saying no, and we shouldn't feel like you know we're asking for a lot. We we, we should be saying no. We demand full right. civil rights. That's right, what we yeah. deserve as Americans. Well, when they see that apology, I think they see a chink in the armor. They see a crack, and that's what they attack. Because, like you said, you don't seem serious. You seem, I see a weakness, so I'm going to exploit that weakness because you're not even refusing to stand up for your full self. Right, and it 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 shows the enemies where they can mm-hmm. uh, where they can kind of have a have some leverage. I mean, even in that story I was telling about Mozilla and Brendan Ike. Once, um, once the opponents of gay rights saw this this disunity among uh, gay voices, gay leaders, gay opinion makers, they really exploited it. And you know, they used Andrew Sullivan and all the stories on Breitbart.com and everything. They kind of morphed the story into that gay groups called for Brendan Ike to step down, and then Newt Gingrich right. went mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. ABC and talked about the new gay fascism, and you know they were able to use that story to drive a backlash against us. Right, and and these stories combined with this apologetic attitude cause uh you know this this thing called covering that you talk about in our book in the LGBT community where we don't you know come out as fully who we are, but we just try and. Uh, nuzzle our way into society as society has presented itself to us. We want to be covered as a normal person versus who we are. Quote-unquote normal, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, a certain form of assimilation, and the word Mm. covering comes from Kenji Yoshino, who wrote this brilliant book called Covering, and I use it a lot in my book, (laughs) and I think it was way ahead of its time in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, where he talks about how all groups, and he's Asian-American but also gay, but all minority groups, kind of when they get to a certain point uh, where they attain a certain cer- certain set of rights, they sort of think, okay, now let's try to fit in rather than showing our difference. Now let's try to show how we're all the same. And it's very limited because it doesn't get at implicit bias. It doesn't challenge mm-hmm. the deep-seated bias. It, it 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 really allows straight people to have you on your own terms, right? <laughs> it right. makes it whatever's palatable to them. So an example I use in the book is, you know, when Michael Sam kissed his boyfriend, that was not covering. <laughs> if he yeah. just had come out and... <laughs> you know, sort of assimilated in, and he was the gay football player. Well, that would have been okay but and, and palatable, but now he kissed on, on television in front of uh, America, and that, um, you know, kind of was too much for people. But, in fact, that shows why we need to do it. We need exactly. to challenge that. Yeah, and I love when you talk about in the book how some people are out there saying, well, that just proved that maybe more men need to kiss on television. Yes, yeah. and that's what we don't see. I mean... We, when we look at broadcast TV, uh, for the most part, and you know, uh, certainly on niche channels, you know, we we, right. we have shows. We just had Looking, and right. uh, you know, we have other shows uh, on HBO and elsewhere um, that that do uh, reflect us more. But when you look at broadcast TV, you know, you see 
you know, gay people who are like the neighbor who's funny, but, mm-hmm. you know, never kind of involved in any sort of anything. Yeah, you know, like it's like we've neutered sexual them. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or even the modern family couple, you know, they don't mm-hmm. really seem to have a chemistry. No. <laughs> let alone sex. They just right? fight. They just yeah, fight. they just agitate each other. Yeah. Um, I have to say, you mentioned something just a minute ago about the implicit and explicit biases. And I want to kind of work that into this scary phenomenon, really, of how good the Christian right and Republican Party are at reframing an argument, at kind of turning the tables. You mentioned the Arizona law that was vetoed and how it was more of a trial balloon that get up. And then they learn from those things and they change it. What they've learned that you uh, show in the book is they learned that, listen, explicit bias is obviously not going to do well with the American people. But if we do this implicit bias if we if we make these laws uh like the religious liberty laws and don't mention the lgbt people but to make it affect them greatly then we have a better chance of passing it i mean talk to me about that that realization that they really do transform and change the wording to turn the tables on us it's something they uh, have done with, with every group. Um, and, you know, I use the term dog whistle. There's a right. book called Dog Whistle Politics, all about how they've done it with, with the issue of race. You know, instead of, you know, talking about uh, issues in an obvious way that will, uh, you know, obviously make people think that they're saying something racist, they'll mm-hmm. speak in code words that mm-hmm. will at least just get to the, the people who harbor those racial sentiments without sort of, um, you know, coming above the radar. So, you know, a famous one was when Ronald Reagan used the term welfare queen or, or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Sure. Or when they talk about food stamps or whatever, they don't ever have to say black people, but then right. they could always say, well, we weren't talking about black people, right? right. So uh, it, it's a classic thing they do, and what and they started doing it now with gay issues, you know, mm-hmm. where they've realized if they say they're against gay rights, and you saw the governor of Indiana, right, he kept, kept saying over and over yeah. again, I'm not discriminating, I would never right. discriminate against That's anybody. not on my agenda. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But it's about our religious freedom. They're recalibrating, and I go to these conferences, the Conservative Political Action Conference, the Values Daughters Summit, and others, and see how they're kind of coming up with these new messages and ways that they can mm-hmm. continue to, um, you know, kind of carve out exemptions for themselves mm-hmm. and blunt uh, gay rights. And uh, they did it with women's rights. Um, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of women thought the, that the battle was won. Yeah. And, and, and here they are still fighting for pay equity and still... Uh, you know, abortion has been, you mm-hmm. know, completely mm-hmm. um, set back. Abortion right. rights. And right. That's the, how they do it. The battle's not over for the women, and it's not over for us. It's far from over. And a lot of the people who vote for these uh, religious freedom rights, well, some of them, are closeted gay politicians. And uh, you you mentioned that a big part of media and one of their responsibilities is to bring light to that because we, you know, in a way deserve to know that someone is in the closet and hurting, you know, people of their own LGBT community. What would you say to, you know, outing those people and making it public knowledge like you would with, uh, you know, if there's a relationship with a straight politician. 
I talk about how there's a duty, I think, mm-hmm. uh, among journalists to expose hypocrisy. Right. Uh, and here you have uh, members of Congress. The example I talk about in the book, a uh, man who was just very famously in the news because he, he stepped down <laughs> as a congressman, right. was Congressman Aaron Schock. Uh, he stepped down because there were all kinds of other uh, things he was doing that mm-hmm. were uh, hypocritical. He was spending taxpayer dollars and, you know, decorating his office and uh, like Downton Abbey uh, <laughs> and going on trips all over the world while he went to Washington on an agenda of, you know, cutting uh, cutting spending and here he is you know, using taxpayer dollars. I mean, that was great that they looked into that, but, you know, there was hypocrisy in his life way before that, and that was right. his voting mm-hmm. uh, for, um, you know, the, uh, well, supporting a federal marriage amendment, but voting and voting against uh, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, while there had been so many stories out there of him being gay, and yet they didn't look into those stories, and they would just come up again and again and again, uh, and some of them would, would get to a level where they'd even be discussed in the media, but nobody really investigated them. And, it, you know, he was a case of somebody who, um, you know, obviously was hypocritical in many ways, mm-hmm. and they could have perhaps stopped him earlier, and it also would have exposed somebody who was voting anti-gay. Right. And way back, I mean, this whole outing concept, I mean, it started way back when you released the article, um, The Secret Gay Life of Malcolm Forbes with Out Weekly, and you were criticized greatly, uh, calling, you know, saying that you were outing people. And you talk in your book about how we have this weird, like, unspoken rule, protecting the glass closet, as you call it. And, and and you talk about it in everything from Hollywood, politics, media, sports. And even though it's been so many years later, that phenomenon is still happening. People are not reporting on things that they would typically report on for heterosexual counterparts. So you still think outing is, is important, that we need to just do our jobs. Yeah, I think the media needs to report whenever it's relevant to a larger story. How are we ever going to get to a point? You know, you keep hearing people say, well, you know, you can't do that because it's different. It's, it's, you know, there isn't that acceptance yet. But then but then everybody's saying we've reached victory. So right. how is it that we've reached victory if you still can't report on gay public figures in the same way you would report on straight public figures? That when are you going to able, be able to do it? Well, maybe... Right. You know, you need to just start doing it, and then people won't feel that it's okay to be in that glass closet. Because most of these people in the glass closet, it's just a kind of convenience for them. Right. Um, they could be out. They wind up coming out at some point, and they're fine. Uh, you know, it's just that it, it sends this message because, especially with the Internet now, everybody knows who's gay, right? right. Everybody talks That's about right. it on, on blogs. So it sends a message to young people that, like, oh, if you're gay, it's something you should only, you should not really talk about and we should only gossip about on blogs. Exactly. It's not mm-hmm. a really good message to be sending to kids. Right. And this message leads to, you know, kids hiding who they are and then inevitably, you know, getting bullied. And you talk a lot about uh, the the idea of bullying and that we should 
be putting in programs that protect the kids who are bullied, but also we should empower these uh, kids who are being bullied with self-defense classes that raise their confidence and that give them tools that they can protect themselves with. I really wanted to take a look at this issue that obviously mm-hmm. we've all been just, you know, so, so blown away by. And again, another example of how we're far from victory. I mean, as as we're more visible, and it could be because the stories are reported more, or who knows why, but for whatever reason, we just see report after report after report of young people taking their lives or being bullied terribly or taking their lives because they were Mm -hmm. bullied terribly. And I was just thinking about what ways can we get at that. Um, And, you know, the It Gets Better program is great, and I think it's one tool telling kids that it's going to be better when they get older and, you know, changing administrations and trying to get laws passed is another tool. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of these tools have their limits. Right. Um, sometimes you can't change things in the schools. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's uh, a very conservative district, uh, whatever whatever the reason is. And so I thought, what other tool are we not using? Right. And this is where I really kind of look back at the lesbian feminist movement and how uh, women had really empowered themselves both emotionally and physically, to fight off attackers through self-defense. And why isn't this something, particularly with now so many kids growing up in families where they are accepted, mm-hmm. um, you know, so many of these stories we saw where kids were bullied, their parents actually were accepting of their being gay. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like, I mean, yeah, if you can understand in, in the families where the parents don't accept them, it's hard to say, okay, put your kid in a self-defense uh, training course, but... For those who are, it is another tool we should be using. Right, and and I have to be honest. I remember reading it thinking it made perfect sense, and yet I... It never crossed my mind, and it hasn't been such a large part of the the big conversation out there, and I thought that's kind of shocking to me that this... that we're not talking about this as a solution, or not only a solution, as a tool for our kids to be able to use. Why do you think that hasn't been part of the big conversation? It's an interesting question. I I asked um, some of the women who really had spearheaded um, self-defense for lesbian feminists and for transgender women uh, back in the 80s, and and they just sort of, they've always said that people always thought as you were saying violence was the answer, and they were really trying to get the point across that, no, it's not about violence. Um, some of the programs are really about avoiding any kind of confrontation. Right. Yeah, some other programs, like uh, Kevin Jennings, who was President Obama's anti-bullying czar, I quote him in the chapter, uh, he actually went to a really aggressive program called Model Mugging, yeah. and he's able to fight off anybody who comes <laughs> him. Uh, but, you know, some of the programs that are not at all about, they're really just about avoiding confrontation, but building emotional self-esteem. And it's it's odd that it just hasn't been part of our, um, part of our toolkit, and, and it should be there. Exactly. And, you know, you bring it down to, you talk about the parents and, and you know, 
basically the local level, the personal responsibility of all of us, that you say things aren't going to change unless there's an actual grassroots effort. And you actually say in the book, if we're serious about winning equality, collective action is the only force strong enough. It will mean Mm -hmm. protesting, practicing civil disobedience, carrying out online campaigns, and perhaps planning right now for another march on Washington. It's, It's a call to action you put in the book saying, listen... We each have a responsibility, and the only way these things change is if the grassroots, if those of us on a personal level stand up and say, we're just not going to do this anymore. It's something that um, has always been, you know, the thing that uh, moved this movement forward. And uh, I'm not sure a lot of people realize this, and maybe a lot of younger people don't realize it, but... Everything we've gotten, uh, everything that's happened, uh, has been because people um, protested. Uh, and we have new tools now, like the Internet and online organizing, and that's great, but it can't just be that. It has to be you know, your body being out there right. and protesting. Exactly. Uh, every achievement we've had, and even right up to everything with marriage equality and with don't ask, don't tell, and pressuring the president. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's already being forgotten. The president, you know, done some great things, and he was really great the other day in coming out against uh, conversion therapy. Exactly. I, I think it's terrific, and I salute him. But it's already being forgotten that this president, you know, had mm-hmm. to really be pressured. Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. Chaining themselves to the White House and, <laughs> right. and interrupting his speeches. So. Yeah. It is going to take all of that. We need a federal civil rights bill. That's not right. going to just happen, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't. It doesn't happen because of Washington mm-hmm. uh, lobbyists mm-hmm. or the gay movement. That's just not enough. Right. It takes that outside pressure. Uh, One of my favorite things about the book is uh, I I like to criticize politicians who address who who see the problem but don't give us a solution. But in this book, at the end of it, you give us seven uh, big steps, big things that we can do uh, that will change the solution. One of them is revolutionize uh, education. Something we talk about here is educating the young kids, especially the public on these issues so they have the tools or at least knowledge to fight for. And I love that you say we need to galvanize the people in a way that makes uh, you know, investing in changing our schools, you know, a, a priority, making LGBT history a big part of that. Uh, what what do you say to that? What do you say to schools uh, that have been starting to do that in schools that, you know, have the no promo homo laws? Well, this is just beginning uh, in California. Right. And uh, it's really uh, amazing that uh, the law was passed and it still hasn't been fully instituted because I think the textbooks are, are going to be uh, printed this year, but it's the very beginning of something that needs to happen across the country, teaching uh, the history of LGBT people, mm-hmm. uh, teaching about prominent individuals in American history who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and mm-hmm. just kind of integrating it into the curriculum so that um, young people from the very, you know, from the earliest, um, you know, grades are learning that, um Gay people are human and mm-hmm, right. uh, really not something alien or different. Some, in some cases, that may be what they're taught at home or at school. And some of the early studies of the uh, schools that have done this have shown that it could cut down on bullying dramatically. Um, I think it'll it'll have an even greater effect, um, you know, throughout society if we were able to do that 
um, in schools across the country, but that's the long haul. I mean, California just mm-hmm. started it. We have um, nine states that have these no-promo-homo laws. We have to get rid of those first. Those basically say you can't even talk about homosexuality in school. Um, right. And then we need to pass them this, you know, gay history, galvanizing re-education, re- you know, re- revolutionizing education uh, all across the country. And the argument that I make there is that all parents should be um, supportive of this because if we could cut down on bullying in school, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it affects everybody's education, mm-hmm. not just the LGBT students. Exactly. I think everybody wants to raise their kids not to be bullies, whether they're gay, you know, right? whether they're gay or straight. Exactly. And I have to say, first of all, um, I want to concur with what Sergey just said, which is we we can talk, obviously. But what we love is is we want to see an, a plan. We want to see an action plan. And so that was what was really exciting to us about your book is you lay it all out. And then in the end, you're like, and I'm going to give you my suggestions on what to do. One of the things you say in the book is as, you know, the selection uh, comes forward, that really to vote for anyone, make sure that they will fully support you. And I wanted to get your your kind of feedback, what your thoughts were on, you know, Hillary Clinton finally announced this morning, she released her first campaign video. It does have, you know, these three gay couples within her campaign video. Uh, what, what are your feelings about Hillary announcing and that whole aspect of, of asking the people we're voting for to fully support us. I think it's great that uh, she has couples. I watched the video, and one of the couples said they were getting married. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. I also saw an uh, announcement that her campaign manager is open to gay. Nice. Uh, so that's great, too. Um, but come June, likely, gay marriage will be over. Hillary Clinton, I mean, over as an issue, uh, in terms of uh, the Supreme Court is likely to bring marriage equality to uh, all states. And Hillary Clinton, you know, she was pretty late on that issue. Uh, She wasn't leading on it. What we need now is this Mm -hmm. federal civil rights bill, uh, and we certainly need leadership uh, in the state. Uh, She hasn't spoken out uh, about that. I would like to see her really speaking out forcefully about it. I'd like to see all of the Democrats really leading on it. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need to really make the case to them about is that it's not just about us and what they should be talking about to energize us. And yes, they need to energize us to vote. And, right. mm-hmm. you know, people just don't blindly turn out. They turn out if you energize that base. Yeah. But but they could also use it to split the Republicans because now exactly. it's a wedge issue for them. They're badly right. divided on it. So right. use it to your advantage. And like you said, it's our job as citizens to be the grassroots people writing in, calling in, letting you know Hillary know if we want to vote for Hillary that these are important to us and we want her to address these things, correct? Yeah. I mean, we want to... Uh, my feeling is I want her to be the best Hillary she can be. Right. People say, well, wait a minute. You should you should just sit back and let her do this. And, and you know, uh, no, we should all want her to be the best candidate possible. 
Right. Absolutely. We all should. Now, to those of you who have just tuned in, we have been talking to Michelangelo Signorelli about his new book, It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. Uh, so this has been an absolute uh, delight talking to you. It's uh, been an honor. We actually Sunday listened afternoon. to your show to get pointers on interviewing people. So. Oh. <laughs> and typically, we just get really, really hyped up because yeah. of your callers. But Fires still. us up. So your listeners as well. Okay. Oh, yes. That's a great it, thing. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So I want to just say, you know, it was an honor for you to come on, and we know Sundays are always fun. Uh, so we appreciate that you took time out to be with Outspoken. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, you guys really uh, did a great job of reading the book so carefully and uh, just being real excited about the issue. So I, I appreciate that as well. Oh, well, thank, thank you. Thank you so that much. means quite a bit. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope to catch you up oh, we're another gonna, time. We'll stalk you and have you on again yeah. later. <laughs> oh, I would love to. Okay, thank you so much. You have a wonderful Sunday, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. As Sergey just said, if you have just just joined us, you are listening to Outspoken on KYRS Medical Lake Spokane. That's 88.1 and 92.3 FM. We have both read this book by Michelangelo Signorelli. It's not over. Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. It came out on the 7th of April. You can go to your local bookstore and pick it up now. And I I know for me, I will tell you, it's worth the read. Absolutely. And I definitely say go get it. Mm-hmm. It's we worth the read, even if you're not an uh LGBT activist, or right. if you're not part of the LGBT community, it's worth the read for yeah. anyone. And Absolutely. It teaches you how to it get does. out there and make yeah. change. Make change happen.